Hi, I'm Mike Dilk and you're listening to the Relax Back UK show. The show that explores all kinds of health topics relevant to you, your family and your friends. Each week I talk to expert guests from a range of backgrounds to inform and entertain you. So please do join the Relax Back UK family and stay tuned. Hi and thank you for joining me on the Relax Back UK show this week. The topic is prostate cancer and it is alarmingly common. So the rough statistics are every year there's about 40,000 new diagnoses and at least 10,000 deaths from prostate cancer every year. So one in eight men will have prostate cancer during their lifetime. Professor Alison Bertle is a consultant clinical oncologist and uh, she is advisor to Macmillan on patient information for prostate, bladder and testicular tumours. She's a trustee and medical advisor to fight bladder cancer and secretary to the British Euro Oncology Group. Tony Collier is also uh, a guest and he's an expert of a different sort. He does he has prostate cancer and he's an ambassador, awareness speaker and vol- volunteer and fundra- fundraiser for Prostate Cancer UK. He's also a trustee of Tackle Prostate and is also a trustee of the Move charity. So two very informed and expert guests, so please do join me for a great show. Thank you. So the topic is prostate cancer. The guests are Professor Alison Bertil and Tony Collier, BEM. And in fact, I first, my first question was to Tony to ask him what BEM stands for and uh, what it was all about. British Empire Medal. Um, I was recognised in the Queen's uh, birthday honours in 2019 for my work in the community before my cancer diagnosis. So I was heavily involved in the regeneration of Altrincham, which is where I live. Um, And um, I was recognised for that in my work as a charity fundraiser before that as well. So, Okay. All right. I made a mistake there because I assume that might have something to do with your work with cancer. But uh, but no, not connected. All right. I think I think he might end up getting another gong for his work with cancer in the future, though. Yeah, the knighthood follows. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll look. We'll look forward to that. We'll do another show when you get when you get the knighthood. Um, but so, all right. So this, this show is about um, is about prostate cancer. So I think a good first question would be uh, to either of you, but probably probably Alison. How many how many men get prostate cancer in the UK? So the rough statistics are every year there's about 40,000 new diagnoses and at least 10,000 deaths from prostate cancer every year. So one in eight men will have prostate cancer during their lifetime. And if you're somebody with a family history, so if you've had a first degree family member, so that's your dad, your brother, your uncle, something like that, your risk goes up significantly. Similarly, if you've got a family history of breast cancer and if you're a black man in the UK, your risk is one in four. So it's the commonest male cancer and the leading cause of male cancer deaths in the UK. It's also mm-hmm. worth adding to that, that 20, about 20% of men diagnosed are diagnosed when it's too late, when it's incurable, um, which is where I was diagnosed. I was diagnosed incurable in 2017 and told I might only have two years to live. So what we're trying to do really um, with all our work as advocates is to try to raise awareness so men do something proactive about their prostate health get diagnosed early and don't end up like me being diagnosed stage four and incurable 
Right. Okay. I think the two well, things about I think the two things about Tony is one, as he said, he would have so much preferred to have been diagnosed earlier when he could have been curable. But secondly, he's a tribute to living with cancer and living well with cancer. So he's had advanced incurable prostate cancer now for five years. Six and, and a half. Yeah. And looks fantastic. And that's a tribute to all of the new treatments that we've had and how they can really maintain men's quality of life and extend their life as well we we will come on to those i I will pick your brains about those but just i've got a question for you which we kind of covered already but on 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 the statistics you said there are forty thousand cases and ten thousand a year and ten thousand deaths a year does that does that mean that if you're diagnosed with it you've got a 25 percent chance of not making it no i mean that's what the so the, the majority of men who are newly diagnosed with prostate cancer um, have got um, treatable disease. So about 20% of men will have advanced prostate cancer and those are men like Tony. The rest of them will have cancers that either we can treat where, and aim at cure or some of those men, because it's a really mixed bag with prostate cancer. So some men have got cancers that are what we call biologically indolent, which basically means that you can safely follow them up according to protocols where you do scans at regular times or examinations or blood tests. But for many of those men, they just need very close follow-up rather than actually jumping in with treatment straight away. So uh, that's why it's so important to get men at the earlier stage so that they've got the biggest chance of cure and they can just get on with their lives. Right. Okay. So so the the key here is getting an early diagnosis as, as, for, for many things, but very much so with cancer and, uh, and and prostate cancer is what we're talking about here. All right, Tony. So you let, let's go to to Tony. You had a late diagnosis. Can you sort of talk us through what happened to you and your your particular case? Yeah, I was mega fit. I was training for an ultra marathon, and I had what I thought was a groin strain. Um, that groin strain turned out to be stress fractures of the pelvis and it was cancer had broken out of the prostate into my pelvic bone. Um, I'd had no symptoms and my urologist think, thinks that I'd had it developing for 10 years. And I had no symptoms for that 10 year period um, and it had already spread into my pelvis, hips, ribs, spine, neck and skull at diagnosis and I'd had no symptoms prior to the groin strain, which as I say turned out to be stress fractures. So the sort of headline to my story is that I went from uh, training for an ultramarathon to terminal early in 36 hours. Um, but I think that the key message underlying that really is that most men diagnosed with early stage prostate cancer have no symptoms. And lots of men don't have symptoms until it's too late. And that's why the diagnosis is so important. Right. OK, so, God, so you, you had no symptoms whatsoever. Nothing I can think about. If I sit back and think about my life during my 50s, I think it'd be fair to say that my ejaculations have got a bit weaker. Uh, I just put that down to getting a bit older. But really, no, I'd had no symptoms at all until the until the, the groin strain started in the February before my diagnosis in the May of 2017. OK, so, well, we'll talk about symptoms, but also, is, is there a way for catching people like 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 Tony Allison, is is like is is there a, a, a testing program for people that don't have symptoms? 
I think uh, people often talk about the testing for prostate cancer as being controversial. And the reason for that is because we don't have a single test that is perfect on its own. So the, the mainstay is still an imperfect blood test, which is called PSA, which stands for prostate specific antigen. And you'll notice I've said prostate, not prostate cancer specific, because it can be raised if men have got cancer, but also if they've got an infection or inflammation of the prostate or a waterworks infection. And there are some men who have a, what we say, a normal PSA for their age, who actually do have prostate cancer, but it's the first step in putting together uh, a number of pieces of the jigsaw. So you should also have an examination of your prostate, which is very easy. It's a, a moment of embarrassment to potentially save your life. Snap on a pair of gloves if you're a healthcare professional and you examine the prostate, which you do you know, via the back passage. Um, and it's much less embarrassing than having a, say, a cervical examination done if you're a woman. Um, and that can then lead on to the next set of tests which are done in the hospital, which are things like MRIs and biopsies if you need to have them done. But this particular I, blood test, I know Tony feels very passionate about, and I wonder if we could just pass over to him in terms sure. of his experience. Yeah, and I think, you know, obviously, I knew nothing about the prostate. I didn't know where the prostate was. I didn't know what it does. And I didn't know that I'd had a right to the PSA blood test at age 50. If I'd known that I'd had a right and been intelligent enough to go and ask my GP for a blood test and had one every year from 50 to 60, I would have been cured, probably. And so I'm very passionate about spreading awareness. I'm an awareness speaker for Prostate Cancer UK. And basically, I go out and tell my story because I, I want to use my story to make sure as few men as possible end up like me. And this is really important. Early diagnosis equals much better outcomes, curative intent in most cases, whereas late diagnosis, you have to live with this whole array of horrendous side effects, uh, effectively of being chemically castrated, because that's one of the, um, the one of the strands of treatment for advanced stage prostate cancer is to remove male hormone. That has some fairly horrible side effects. However, the treatment's keeping me alive. It's enabled me to see three more grandchildren come into my life and walk my daughter down the aisle. And so, you know, people like Alison doing amazing work and cancer research doing amazing work in the UK, prolonging the lives of people like me. And since I was diagnosed, there's at least six new treatments come along that I'm aware of that will prolong my life when this one stops working. So, you know, we're in a much better place now than six and a half years ago. The diagnostic pathways improved out of all recognition. You know, when I was at my my biopsies, they were done transrectally. Um, it's reasonably barbaric. Uh, we don't do that anymore, thank goodness. They're done in a different way, um, which Alice can Alison can talk about. And we we'll, 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 we'll come on to those. Look, yeah. what about if we talk about some of the sort of more simple symptoms, which which you didn't have, but yeah. lots of other guys do. So that that's probably an important thing to kind of um list important yeah, things I mean, to list I, so either of you yeah what i think if, if men, number one yeah i think if men do have symptoms it's usually urinary problems um but you can get those with other prostate problems as well so it's not just as um it's not a symptom of prostate cancer it's a symptom of a prostate problem so urinary uh, problems you know inability to pee peeing too much dribbling when you go for a pee those are sort of typical signs of something going on yeah. well, what is too much so look, I'm, I'm 57 yeah it's quite common for me to have to get out of bed at 
maybe five o'clock in the morning, sometimes four o'clock, to have a pee. And, um, you know, it, that happens when you get a bit older. Or should I be worried? So I think as you get a bit older, we all, you know, men and women often try and tend to get up maybe once a night. But I think what we're looking at is people where there's a sudden, where there's a change. So, you know, you used to be able to hold your urine for three to four hours during the day. Now it's maybe two hours. You've got that bit of urgency. You can't hold as much when you go. You know, you can't hold for as long. You get start stops. You having you go. If you get up to the loo in the middle of the night, you don't just sort of have a pee very easily. You have to stand there for a bit before it comes out. And then it's a bit more dribbly. It starts and stops and all those sorts of things. One thing in isolation is um is usually something that may just be a sign of aging but put them all together any of those then you start worrying and look it's far better to have somebody look at you and say do you know what it's just you're getting a bit more mature in life because remember that 60 is the new 20 um and i treat men who are you know far fitter than i'm ever going to be my farmers of the north lakes um, who walk in and you look for their their dad when they arrive and it says that they're 80 and actually they look about 50 because, you know, they keep themselves very fit and well and they exercise every day, which we can talk about in a moment. But it's those changes that, you know, even if it's age related, it's just worthwhile getting it checked out. Tony is an absolute example of this. I want to see men so that I can say, look, this is all fine. Um, and this is early prostate cancer, you, you know, you had your treatment or you don't need any treatment at the moment. We can just observe you. Off you go. I don't want to be seeing that the uh, one in five men who come through with something that could have been caused at a much earlier stage had they either told us about their symptoms or had they had a discussion about the pros and cons of getting tested for prostate cancer. All right. So we've, we've mentioned symptoms. If there are symptoms, you go along to the GP. And they said, right, we're going to do some tests. You, you, you've spoken about this blood test. Yep. Um, and also the, the physical examination, which is, you know, uh, glove time, finger up the bum time. Um, but very easy to do. And absolutely. absolutely you, know, you know, very quick and easy to do. You also mentioned this biopsy, which so sounded a little bit scarier. Tell us a bit more about that. So not every man will go on to have a prostate biopsy now. So what's happened in the last few years is that MRI techniques. So an MRI is a particular type of scan that's a bit noisy but um, and slightly claustrophobic. But I've had one. It's perfectly fine. Um, and they, the type of MRI now has meant that some men don't need to go on and have biopsies. And the men that do... We can actually target the areas that you see on the scan much better. So what used to happen is we did a fairly, it's a bit like battleships. You know, you had a grid and you took sort of 12 biopsies, you know, from you know, in total, but from different different bits of the prostate. You took a bit from the middle on each side, bit from well, the, and the top. The prostate's small anyway, isn't it? If, you get, if you're taking 12 bits out of something that's the size of a conker, there's not, not going to be much of it left, is there? Well, to be honest, most men's prostates are sort of probably around 40 grams, but we see them up to 300 grams, which are very big, and you will have a problem with your waterworks at that point. But the biopsy, the, the amount of material that's taken out is very small. So it used to be a bit more of a blunderbuss approach, whereas now we can target things, and most things are done, um, sometimes they're done under general anaesthetic um, as well, rather than just a local anaesthetic. Um, so we've moved on, rather than it being a sort of a, a 
uh, as I say, a bit like a battleship's grid and you're taking, irrespective of what the the, the man's anatomy was like, you take bits from you know each side, top, bottom, right, left, Whereas now you can target things much better based on what you see on that MRI scan. And some men might not even need to go on to have a biopsy because you can reassure the vast majority of men if their MRI looks absolutely fine, very bland, very featureless, and their blood test is fairly modest uh, and there's nothing to feel when you examine the prostate, you can say to most of these men, actually, you probably don't need a biopsy. And that's something we couldn't have done five years ago. Right. So we're happy to be bland and featureless. Happy that's, to uh, be bland and featureless. Some, yeah. Sounds, sounds me up perfectly. That's a definitely right. positive, isn't it? Yeah. I think yeah. the thing with the, the biopsies back in when I was diagnosed six and a half years ago, they were still, still done transrectally. Uh, it's not the most pleasant procedure. procedure. They're done differently now. They do it transperennially, which is a gap between the bottom of the scrotum and the back passage and done under anaesthetic. So um, reduces the risk of infection, much more targeted. Um, back when I had my biopsy, as it happened, Alison, they only took five samples. And that's because they knew it was prostate it, cancer because yeah. my PSA was so high. So yeah. they only took five samples, but it wasn't the most pleasant experience. Um, oh. And the way it's done now is a massive improvement. It's also enabled us to have a much better diagnostic pathway. Unfortunately, our GPs need to catch up a bit with that. So we've, we've been through symptoms. We've been through tests. Right. So if you go through all that and the result is, is positive, right, sorry, you know, you've got a, a problem with your prostate. What kind of treatment? What, what, what happens next? What's available? And uh, what, what, what determines what treatment you need? So the treatment is going to be determined by what we call the stage and the grade of the cancer. And what that basically means is what it looks like down the microscope gives you the grade of the cancer. And we give it a score. Um, and, it, you know, we, we like to talk in these mysterious terms like a Gleason score. And what it basically means is Gleason was a pathologist in America and it was his way of, of describing what prostate cancer looked like down the microscope that we still use. So the pathologist looks down and says, is there cancer there? And if it is, he gives it a score out of five for the commonest type that he can see. And so you get a score out of five. And then he gives another score to the second most common. So you get something that adds up to something out of 10. So the most aggressive ones will be a five plus five out of 10. The least aggressive ones will actually be not a not a two out of 10, but they'll actually be a six out of 10. And that's because as we've learned more, we realize that the ones and twos out of five aren't cancer. They're just a variation of normal tissue. And that's because we've learned more and more as we've got on. So that gives you what we call the grade. And that's what it looks like on the biopsies. And the second thing is what is the stage? And that's based on partly on what we feel when we examine the prostate so we can feel if it feels outside of the prostate going into other things around like the back like uh, the rectum or into the bladder or into the side walls of the pelvis we can feel that when you know if you're trained to do this and we can also see on a scan what the extent of the disease is and that tells us whether it's locally advanced so that means around the escape from the capsule that the prostate sits in and um, to the tissues around it or to the lymph nodes or whether it's spread into the lymph nodes, say in the abdomen or into the bones or other areas of the body. And that gives us what we call the stage. So all of those things are put together, Mike, so that we can then work out for the individual person the best treatment for the cancer 
And then, of course, we've got to factor in the individual patient characteristics. So, for example, if you've got somebody with early prostate cancer, but at a level where we think they do need to have treatment, then you're going to want to assess people's um, fitness. What's their life expectancy from other medical conditions? Because you want them to live long enough to benefit. And mm -hmm. what are their waterworks like? What are other medications on that, that might interact with some of the treatments that they're on uh, that we want to give them if they've got more advanced prostate cancer or cancer that's spread? So it's all those patient factors. And then, of course, you've got patient preference. If we've got a choice of different treatments, particularly for earlier stage prostate cancer, some men might have a choice between um, radiation therapy or having their prostate removed. And both of those for some men will give you exactly the same results from a cancer viewpoint, but will give different side effects and different logistics. So at the heart of it, we always need to make certain there's that patient and his family and we take into account what their wishes and preferences are. Goodness me. All right. So there's there's you you may not have an operation then. It's quite you it's may a good not. chance. No, you may. So if you've got early prostate cancer, for some men, we use active surveillance. So for men who've got a biopsy that shows that their cancer is, um, there isn't very much of it, or what there is, is what we call well differentiated, which means it's at the good end, um, and their scans don't show any spread, and it's all confined to the prostate, we might, might manage them with what we call active surveillance, which means that they'll then be on regular blood tests every three to six months, and they'll get another MRI scan in a year. And that's all that those men need. Take it a step further for men with um, cancer that has that does need to have treatment but hasn't spread elsewhere in the body. Then it's a choice for many of those men between radiation treatment and prostatectomy. And we know from a massive study in the UK called the Protex study that in that circumstance, either of those treatments give you the same long-term outlook from the cancer viewpoint. Where it all gets a bit more tricky is when we get advanced prostate cancer, where it's either spread into the tissues around the prostate or into other areas of the body. And then we need to start adding different medications in, the ones that Tony's already referenced that do have an impact on quality of life. Because the problem is prostate cancer is driven by testosterone, the male hormone. So once you've got the more aggressive prostate cancers, we need to effectively nuke your testosterone. Um, and we do that with medication because we need to stop the underlying drive, which is testosterone. And that's not just about sexual functioning. That's about um, affecting your, your energy levels, um, getting hot sweats, putting, affecting the way your body handles things like sugar and fat, um, reducing your muscle mass and your muscle strength and affecting your bone health, as well as slowing you down a bit mentally. So we have to make certain that we address all of those things, as well as putting men on treatment. Goodness, there, there are quite a few side effects there. What what about if you do have an operation? I mean, um, so uh, have things progressed? Because my, my thought is if you have an operation, actually, there's quite a chance of you ended up end up being incontinent or you end up being impotent. Uh, what what's the situation there so those are both potential risks with surgery and the surgery is called a prostatectomy a radical prostatectomy but most people now have it using the robot so that means that there is an the surgeon operates rather than using his hands directly in you you've got the it's robotic assisted and it's done through keyhole surgery so that means that your time in hospital is much shorter yes you will go home with a catheter in but it does reduce side effects in the long term. 
And each individual surgeon will know what their risk is of in terms of somebody um, uh, in terms of incontinence rates, for example. So they can tell somebody what their risk is of still needing any pads at three, six or 12 months after surgery or in the long term. But also, depending on if the cancer is in one side, say, of the prostate, you can consider an operation where you might spare the nerves on the other side. And that can give men more of a chance of being able to retain you know, their erections afterwards if they were getting them normally beforehand. Of course, radiotherapy comes with some of those side effects as well, incontinence much less commonly. But impotence is still a side effect of radiotherapy. And if you add the other medications into the mix, then at that point, we, we do have all of those other things that we just talked about. All right. Good. I think after mentioning all, all those side effects, it might be just good to to, to say how much better uh, treatment is now and how much better prognosis are um, than they have been. Well, that's just a, such a major area. You know, I, when I was diagnosed, the standard of care for advanced stage prostate cancer was basically hormone therapy linked with chemotherapy. Um, but literally, I was diagnosed in the May and then heard about this drug that I'm now on in the June. It was announced at a conference in Chicago. And I managed to get my private medical insurance to fund it for me. So, and that drug's been a godsend. It's kept my cancer completely stable. But in that period, since my diagnosis up to now, and these are these are treatments for stage four, advanced stage prostate cancer that's incurable. There are at least six or seven new treatments that have come around that weren't available when I was diagnosed. And I'm aware of other things in the pipeline so that when this drug stops working for me, I've got other options. And for people like me, the most important thing is that we live in with hope. We live with hope that when our treatment stops working, that there are new treatments that will be um, will be there for us. And the fact that I've remained completely stable now for uh, over six years is remarkable. But I've, I am now full of hope because we, I know that there are new treatments coming along uh, and there are treatments that have come along already that will keep me going when this treatment stops working. So I think we're in a much better place than we used to be. So, Tony, have, have you made sort of lifestyle changes? You say your cancer is now stable to give you the best shot at keeping that stable. You know, are, are you, do you now doing well, you used to do lots of exercise before, but you know, are you, are you doing exercise and not drinking caffeine or what? You know, tell us. Um, Alison and I are both very passionate about the value of exercise for people living with and beyond cancer. Uh, and I've, I've become quite expert on the subject. Um, and for me, exercise has been the most vital part of um, what uh, my treatment regime feels like, apart from the medication. So I have carried on trying to run three or four times a week. I've done some ridiculous challenges like running a 100 kilometre ultramarathon, um, last year, I ran at least 5k a day for 365 days. Um, and so, yeah, you know, I, I was blessed that I was reasonably fit before I started. And my idea of exercise might be different to some of Alison's patients. Um, but everybody should be doing some exercise. We should be getting our heart rate elevated by doing some cardiovascular exercise. But actually, more importantly, as, as importantly for men living with prostate cancer, uh, you need to do strength work. So you, because you lose muscle mass, if you don't maintain your strength, then it's going to make life worse. It's going to make your, your quality of life worse. 
So yeah. certainly exercises are vitally important for men living with um, with prostate cancer, but it's vital for everybody. And, you know, I think uh, Chris Whitty said back in April 2020, right at the start of the COVID pandemic, um, there's no condition where exercise is not a bad thing, you know. Uh, and I think this is this is really important. And I think I saw a, a quote recently and it was um, it was an Australian oncologist and she said something like there's lots of hype around new treatments coming on board. Uh, there's and, and, and basically there's too much hype and we actually sort of quash hope a little bit. But the only area that's not overhyped is exercise. So I think this we are now seeing exercise be, becoming a real part of our treatment pathway. And it's really important. I'm sure Alison absolutely agrees with that. Oh, I do. I mean, I think, you know, a lot of our treatments do things like they they can, you lose muscle mass around your pelvis and you can get thinning of your bones and um, exercise can really help, you know, reduce the risk of uh, that happening. But also it helps with people with um, the, the weight gain that they can get with the medications. And we know that if you hit that magic thing, which is 90 minutes, three times a week, um, that actually has an impact on the cancer. And it does that because it reduces things like insulin-like growth factors, which we know now are a bad thing in cancer. So you're actually changing the nature of the cancer by the exercise that you do. Not to mention the fact that you feel better because you've got that sort of endorphin <laughs> rush and you feel better about it in general. And also people, people understandably are anxious about the diagnosis, their treatment, but anxiety can often be reduced by taking control because we all feel out of control and out of our depth. So if you're taking control of just one aspect of it by your diet and your exercise, and by diet, I don't mean doing some fatty diet or eliminating dairy or thinking if you eliminate sugar completely that cancer feeds on it, those are all tosh. It's about moderation. It's about making certain that you get enough of the essential nutrition that you need and you don't do anything fatty. That's the you know, Mediterranean diets are very good, bit of olive oil, lots of brightly colored fruit and vegetables you know all the all these things that are actually good for our heart are also good for our cancer um journey as well okay right we, we've covered an awful lot of stuff perhaps to finish with it would be a good idea if people are listening to this and they want a bit more uh information a bit more help on the topic in general um what are some good resources that people can go and have a look at so i'm going to start and say don't go on to dr google Absolutely. Don't go on to Facebook. Yeah. Um, sites like Prostate UK, Tackle, these are all brilliant. And Prostate UK, you know, they've got advisors on the end of a phone as well who are trained professionals that you can talk to. They've got nurse advisors. So it's about looking at Macmillan, Cancer Research UK, Prostate UK, Tackle, all of these validated websites, not just going on to somebody who says, you know, you buy my supplement and I will cure your <laughs> prostate cancer charlatan type person. I don't know. Tony, what have you got to add to that? Yeah, I think Prostate Cancer UK is a great source, but actually one of the one of the more uh, recent sources is the Info Pool. Um, the Info Pool is a website that I yeah. was partly involved with the development of. Um, and the Info Pool basically has something like 250 stories of men living with prostate cancer, including mine. Um, but it's got some great information uh, it talks you through from diagnosis through your pathway. And if you sort of go in there and put in your diagnosis and what your staging is, um, uh, what your Gleason score was, what your PSA level was, uh, what treatment, and then it will tell you potentially what treatment options you've got. And then it will 
connect you with men like me who've gone through those treatment options. So the info pool is the one of the better new ones that's out there. Um, Prostate Cancer UK is great. Tackle if you want a support group. So um, Tackle runs all the support groups across the UK, and I'm a, a trustee and vice chair of Tackle. Okay, right. Thank you very much indeed to both of you. Um, very interesting and very useful for a lot of people. So, so many thanks. You're very welcome. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much to my guests on this week's show, and they they were Professor Alison Bertil and Tony Collier. And of course, a big thank you to you for listening, and have a healthy week. Until next week. Thanks for listening to the Relax Back UK show. Join me, Mike Dilk, again next week for more fascinating interviews and chat. If you're listening to the podcast version, please subscribe, like, and share it with your family and friends. And have a healthy week. Until next week.